faith and life. For some people, they're parallel roads. They never come into contact with each other. One never influences the other. Yet for some other people, faith and life are more like intersecting roads. Often they're running opposite each other, but where they do intersect, wonderful God moments can be experienced. But yet for just a few, the two roads merge into one, and the results are truly a highway to heaven. What does the road of faith and life look like in your world? Um, we're continuing our sermon series, uh, the GOAT sermon series, Greatest of All Times. And uh, the first week we talked about the greatest of all times prophet, and it was Elijah. Uh, and last week we talked about the greatest of all times disciple. And, and there's really you know, maybe a little bit of a debate on that. It could be Paul, it could be Peter, but I mentioned as Protestants, we would tend to side with Paul on that. Um, this morning, though, we're going to look at who is the greatest of all time leader in the Bible. And, and you would be surprised at who that person is because on the surface, this doesn't appear to be someone that would be uh, the greatest of all times leader because the person that we're going to look at this morning was someone who was uh, almost aborted right at birth. Um, it was someone who grew up in a foster family, um, someone who was spoiled, someone who had some anger issues and even killed a person, uh, someone who was a fugitive, um, someone who even describes of himself as being slow of speech, and uh, someone who could be at times relatively impulsive. What's interesting, we look at those qualities, when you think of the greatest of all time leader, if I was to describe a person like that, that person doesn't even seem like they're suited to be a leader, let alone the greatest of all time leaders. And for some of you, you know who I'm talking about. I'm talking about who? Moses. Absolutely. So we're talking about Moses this morning, and I said last week about Paul, I said my challenge with Paul is there's so much information on Paul, I really need to do like a five-part series on him. Honestly, the same is true about Moses, and, and if I'm going to do a five-part series on, on Paul, I should probably do one on Moses at some point, and, um, and, and there's just too much for me to, to, to really share. Honestly, like I'm going to be cramming information, skipping over information in a way that I'm not necessarily even comfortable doing, so this is totally going to be the Reader's Digest version, but after I've painted the picture that I have, um, I want to spend a little time just talking to you about leadership this morning. So let's start off by talking about Moses in terms of this. Moses barely survived being born, okay? Why? Because God had brought the Israelites into Egypt, honestly, is, is a place in which they could grow and prosper. And they were there for about 400 years. And, um, and during their time there, they, they were very uh, fruitful. They multiplied um, and, and they grew to be a very large in number, so much so that honestly, they became a threat to the Egyptians. Um, too many of them in the Egyptians began to worry that, you know what, from within, they could ultimately be overthrown by these Hebrews. So they had to handle that a certain way. And so they decided, you know what, for at least a period of time, they were going to kill all the male babies. Why the male babies? Because, well, the male babies, one, would reduce the population because, you know, you're, you're killing, you know, half 
of everyone that's born. But the other issue is it's going to be the males that are going to be the ones that, you know, contrary to public opinion today and what they try to teach us and recondition us to think, it's going to be the males that are going to be the ones that tend to be more aggressive. It's going to be the males that are going to be the ones that will uh, be more willing to kind of uh, overthrow the government and, 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 and create havoc and damage and so forth. So it's the male babies that were required to uh, be put to death. And how that took place is there was supposed to be like an Egyptian maidservant that would be kind of aware when someone gave birth. They didn't, they didn't have the, you know, the, the, the sonograms back then. They didn't, you didn't know if you're having a male or a female until the baby came out. So they would report when um, it would be a male child and that male would be readily put to death. So Moses' mom gave birth. It was, uh, he was a male. And, uh, and she was able to hide that. But she was only able to hide him for about three months. And she got to the point in which um, she couldn't hide him any longer. So now what do you do? Now, the Bible doesn't tell us that God spoke to Moses' mom and said, guess what, put Moses in a basket and everything will be fine and I'll take it. There's no record. God could have, but we're not aware that he did. So, uh, so what's Moses' mom going to do? Like, he's going to die if she keeps him. So she, like, in her mind, there's, maybe if I put him in a basket, maybe someone will find him and someone will, maybe one of the Egyptians will care for him and, and so forth. She has, she has no other hope, really, honestly. So she does that, and as she puts Moses in the basket and Moses floats away, Moses has an older sister who's kind of running alongside to kind of keep track to find out what happens to her baby brother. Well, it just so happens, uh, and it doesn't just so happen, but, you know, God's behind it, uh, but it just so happens that uh, Moses, uh, you know, floats down the Nile and, and floats uh, in front of uh, one of Pharaoh's daughters, who see, hears Moses crying and has compassion on this Hebrew baby. Now, you know, don't read too much into it. Once again, you know, Moses' mom doesn't necessarily know what's about to happen and how this is going to turn out. And, and she knows her dad's, like, command. She could easily put Moses, you know, to death right there, drown him, and that was what she probably should have done. But honestly, just in the same way, like, if you and I came upon a stray puppy, you know, baby puppy or something like that, we're going to probably have compassion on that. She has compassion on this Hebrew baby. Uh, and so as she pulls Moses out of the water, uh, Moses' sister pops up and says, oh, would you like me to find a, a, a Hebrew uh, woman that would be able to nurse him? And Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, please. And, and so Moses' sister goes and gets Moses' mom who then now comes and uh, is with Moses at least uh, through that time in which uh, Moses is being nursed. That's all we know. Now, here, here's the deal. I love religious movies, and I hate them at the same time. I love them because they, they tell the story of the Bible, but what I dislike about them is they try to fill in all these gaps to kind of tell the story. And, and frankly, they, they need to fill in the gaps. Otherwise, you could just read the Bible, right? So, you know, they, they try to paint a more complete picture. So you'll see it all the time. Moses is growing up and he's on Pharaoh's lap and Pharaoh's, hey, Moses, you know, patting him on the back. And, and, and Moses is racing chariots with his, you know, Pharaoh's other, you know, uh, you know uh, children or grandchildren or what have you. Listen, none of that's in the Bible. I, I, don't, I can't tell you how many, like, kids Pharaoh had or, or how, how many wives Pharaoh had. 
But I'm just going to tell you that Pharaoh probably had a few amount of people he had children through. That's just what pharaohs do. That's just what kings do. Uh, there could have been like a hundred kids, and, and let alone grandkids, and or a thousand. Listen, Pharaoh may not have ever even really knew who Moses was, and Moses certainly wouldn't have been someone that would have been necessarily well received by Pharaoh because, frankly, he was a Hebrew kid. So all these stories that like all those movies try to paint, whatever, we, we just don't know. We do know that like how Moses ends up uh, being raised within the royal family, extended family, right? Um, but then the next thing that we find out about Moses from the scriptures is that um, um, Moses somewhere, and there's a debate, somewhere between the ages of 25 to 40, I tend to side more and he was probably about 40 years old when this happened. Um, uh, Moses ends up lashing out in anger and killing someone. So uh, Moses knew he was a Hebrew, um, and he didn't like to see how his people were being treated. So there's this Egyptian taskmaster that was being uh, overly harsh with, uh, with this Hebrew, and Moses kills the guy. And then he, like, like digs a hole in the sand and tries to hide the guy's body. He didn't think anyone saw it. Until the next day, now there's this quarrel between a couple of Hebrews, his own people. He tries to break up the quarrel, and one of them says, oh, are you going to kill us like you did that Egyptian yesterday? And that's when Moses realized, wow, that was seen, and, uh, and he's got to flee. He's got to run for his life. He has to get out of town. Where does he go? Well, he ends up going to Midian, and what's interesting about Midian and what's unique about Midian is that it is um, uh, in Northwest Arabia. And what's interesting about that is if you remember the story of Paul last week, after Paul had his encounter with God, Paul didn't just rush into doing ministry. Uh, Paul goes to where? Arabia, uh, to the desert region, to kind of get an education from God. Um, Elijah, we talked about the week before, where does God call Elijah? We know nothing about Elijah's early years. We just know that God called him out of the desert. The desert is the place in which, you know, the wilderness in which um, God just can, you know, there's not a lot of distractions. It's hard living. It's where God can kind of give you a little bit of an education. It's where you can kind of learn to maybe even be obedient and to hear God's voice. And so this is where Moses then goes for the next third of of his life for 40 years. And here's where I want to encourage some of my uh, older folk this morning. And I'm including, Mitchell pops his head up. Are you talking about me? That does not have to be a put down to call someone an older folk, right? I'm 49 years old. I guarantee I'm not living to 98. I'm beyond midlife. So just get over it. If you're older, you're older. But let me encourage you. Um, when we're older, things, things don't work the same way they did when we're younger. You know, our, our younger kids, they feel pretty good about themselves. I mean, they look good. They're physically fit. I mean, you know, there's a lot to, to celebrate about being, you know, a 25-year-old or whatever. And, and good for you, right? Good for you. Um, but, when, but when you're older, um, sometimes things, you know, our, we get some lines and our skins maybe sag a little bit. You may, when you're trying to call one of your kids, have to go through five names before you know you got to the right name. It, it happens. I'm speaking from experience. You may moan when you stand up, and when you sit down, it might be a controlled fall onto the recliner, and it's okay. 
that it's just part of getting, but what's really cool about getting older is something called wisdom and experience, and it's something we don't have when we're younger. In fact, when we look at God and look at how God uses people, he tends to use older people, right? I mean, he's using Abraham at 80. He's not really beginning to use Moses until 80. Um, even we talked about Paul last week. Paul doesn't get called until he's like lower to mid-30s. Well, he's already midlife at that point because they're only living about 60 or so back in his day. So, uh, so great, youth is fine, but what they say, like, you know, fine wine with age or aged, you know, beef or whatever, you know, some things come better with age. So, yeah, to my older people, right? Are you better, Mitchell? Good. You're feeling, you're feeling hit your chest is already sticking out a little bit more. Good, good. All right. All right, so, uh, so Moses has to spend then the next 40 years getting an education by God in the desert. Um, and then you have what I would call the turning point. And it's not singular. Moses has multiple ones, so do we going to talk about that. But let me talk to you about the most significant uh, turning point in, uh, in Moses' life from Exodus chapter 3. Um, so now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness, and he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now, when the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames of fire from within a bush, Moses saw, he noticed that the bush, though it was on fire, was not burning up. So Moses thought to himself, you know what, I'm going to go check this strange sight out for myself, why the bush is not burning up. Now, when the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to take a look, God called out to Moses from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and come to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land that is flowing with milk and honey, to the, to the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites, it has reached me. I've seen the way that the Egyptians are oppressing them, so now go. And I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, up out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and to bring the Israelites up out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. For when you brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses says to God, but suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, well, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And this is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. 
Now, it's interesting, this word that God, this name that God calls himself I am, that's the word Yahweh I talked about a week or two ago. But here, you don't even, Moses doesn't even really know the, the, the name of God. All right, you're asking me to do this, and I know these are my people, but if they ask who's going to send me, you know, what, what do I tell them? Now, what I think is interesting and what I want to just pause on for a second is that life is filled with tipping point moments. And like I said, it's not usually singular. There's usually multiple ones that we'll experience in life. And a tipping point moment is when things can go this way or it can go that way. But whichever way it goes, it sets into momentum, a trajectory that will continue for quite some time. The first tipping point moment in Moses' life was when his mom put him in the basket. Now, she could have kept trying to hide Moses, probably wouldn't have worked out really well. She could have been law obedient and handed him over to authorities to, to be killed, and he would have been killed. Or she could have put him in the basket, and she put him in the basket. And, and so that's the first tipping point, and it sets in tra trajectory the next 25 to 40 years of his life in which he's raised in a pretty comfortable situation as, uh, as, as uh, royalty to some extent, right, within Egypt. The second tipping point in, in, in Moses' life is when he came upon that Hebrew taskmaster that um, was treating the, the Hebrew hard, harshly, I'm sorry. And, and when he did that, Moses has a point, right? He could ignore that. Um, he could just speak up, but he, he strikes the guy and he kills him. Now, he didn't have to do that. Once again, a tipping point can go this way or that way. Now, was that what he was supposed to do? Probably. You know, wrap your mind around that. God probably wanted it to happen that way so that he would go out into the desert and, and have an education. Regardless, he did it, and that set into motion a trajectory that for the next 40 years, he's, he's tending livestock for his father-in-law out in the wilderness. And then kind of the, the, the third and the final major event, the tipping point in his life is this kind of a burning bush experience um, where, where God's calling out to in, and speaking to him. And listen, Moses didn't want to go. This is, I, I don't have the time, but this is where he's like, I'm slow of speech. I can't do this. I can't do that. He's trying to give God all the excuses in the world as to why he's not the right one to go before Pharaoh. But ultimately, God gets a little crabby with him, and, and Moses realizes he just better go, and he goes. And that sets into motion the last 40 years of his life in which that's the, 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 the whole time in which Moses accomplishes all these crazy things for God. Here's what I want to encourage you with is we have those same tipping points in our own lives, these, these, these watershed moments. And, and like, it, like on a balance, it can go this way or it can go that way. And sometimes we, we don't even really know what, what, what's, what's the best way to go. All I can say is, you know what, be obedient to God in the moment. And God's gracious. Some of us, maybe we, we, we didn't follow God in an earlier tipping point, and that does set into motion a trajectory that is going to carry on for maybe five years, 10 years, 15 years, or, or maybe even longer. But God's gracious. Normally, there's going to be uh, other chances and other major events that take place. And in that moment, be faithful to God. Now, that doesn't mean that things are going to turn out the way that you want them to. That doesn't mean that your life is going to be easy. None of that is true. And you may end up going in a direction that you would have preferred not to. But when we act in obedience to God, then God's able to accomplish amazing things through our lives. And so I encourage you, be faithful to God in those tipping point moments of your life. 
So Moses is ultimately uh, obedient to God, and he becomes the deliverer to, uh, to Israel. Most of you know the story, so briefly, uh, Moses goes before the Pharaoh, um, ten plagues happen. At the end of the plagues, the Pharaoh just wants to be rid of him, that he's willing to allow his free slave labor to just walk away. They go out into the desert. Uh, Pharaoh changes his mind. He chases after him, uh, pins him up against the sea. Um, God causes the sea to split. Israel walks across it. The Egyptians try to follow. When the Egyptians follow, the sea closes in and destroys all those who were following the Israelites. And now Israel is in the, uh, in, in, in the desert, if you will, the wilderness, um, and, uh, in, and for the next kind of section of, uh, of their existence. Uh, so I, I want to uh, then kind of go to this, the next phase. Uh, after Moses is uh, the deliverer of Israel, I want to spend a little time talking about Moses as the one who reflects the glory of God to the people. Um, let's take a look at Exodus chapter 34, 29 to 35. So after Moses brings them into the promised land, he goes up and he receives the Ten Commandments from, from God. And so when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant of law that were in his hands, Mo, what Mo, Moses wasn't even aware. His face is radiating because he had spoken with the Lord. All right, I'm going to give you a little bit of useless information here this morning. Maybe. But so it says Moses' face was radiating. That Hebrew word uh, to radiate light is actually the same word for horns. So um, I think it was Michelangelo um, actually did a uh, statue painting. I don't know. You know me with details. But if you happen to ever see an image of Moses with horns, that's why. Because he was confused. All right? That, that word is, is the same. But I can assure you that when Moses turned, was in the presence of God, he didn't grow horns. Okay? God is spirit, but even with that, we have no indication that God ever had horns. And then what you're about to find out is when Moses came before the people, he was having to cover his face um, because it was radiating light, uh, not because horns were growing out. So if you ever happen to see a picture where Moses has horns, or you travel into Europe, wherever this like painting or statue or image is, now you know. Okay? All right. Good. Um, so Moses is in the presence of God. His face is radiating. Uh, verse 30, now when Aaron, that's Moses' brother, and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face is radiating light, and they were afraid to come near to Moses. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and the leaders of the community, they came back to Moses and they spoke, uh, and Moses spoke to them. Now afterwards, all the other Israelites came to Moses and he gave them all the commands that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. Now when Moses finished speaking to them, he would put a veil over his face. But whenever he would enter the Lord's presence to speak with the Lord, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he would come out, uh, he would tell the Israelites what had been commanded to him. Uh, they would see that his face was radiant. It would scare them. It would probably be hard to look at. So Moses would have to put the veil back over his face until he went to speak to the Lord again. I think we just need to spend a little time on that. How cool is that, that Moses, by being in the presence of God, is radiating the, the image of God, the presence of God, in a reflective type way back to the people. 
And how cool would that be if, if as we encounter God through the reading of his word and as we encounter God through prayer and through his Holy Spirit, that we would reflect an image of God to, to the people around us. The, the scripture says, be a light to the world around us. God is light. We see that maybe in a very little way. Sometimes when we all know someone who they just, they have that like light about them, right? Or you're like, man, I, I can feel God's spirit coming through you. Or maybe there's even just like, appears to be like a little glow to their face. We've all experienced some people who are like that. How cool would it be if, if, if that's just how we were in general? I mean, we're such vain people, you know, for, for the most part, and some of us more than others, and let's, let's just be honest, you know, sometimes women can be more concerned about image than even what guys are. But listen, I know some guys who are as well, and we're like, you know, before we leave the house, we try on our outfit. I'm like, does this make me look fat? You know, or do I look too, too thin in this if you've got the problem the other way? Or, or you, know, you know, we're trying to cover up our wrinkles or maybe, you know, spots that we have on our, our, our face or, you know, you know, we want our hair to be, you know, just right. Because, you know, when we go to the bank, when we go to the supermarket, when we go to work, I mean, we, ju we just want to look our best, right? How about like when, 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 you, when you get ready to leave the house, you stop by the mirror and you're like, am I radiating God today? Do I have the glow of the Lord in my eyes and on my face? And, 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 and wouldn't, it be, wouldn't it be great if that's what we were so concerned about radiating to other people? And I believe that's what really God calls us to do is he calls us to be a light to the world around us. That, that just in the same way that like you can look at a kid and oh, they favor their mom or oh, they favor their dad. Hey, how about we favor our heavenly father and people see God in and through us? Now that's a novel concept, isn't it? Look in the mirror and think that before you leave next time. So uh, Moses, uh, he takes the people out, and then uh, there's Moses, the leader, during the, the, the desert wanderings. And, and this is a 40-year period that I'm going to summarize in about 30 seconds here. Um, listen, uh, Moses brought them out into the desert. God had a plan for them. The plan was that they're going to enter the promised land. They had an opportunity to do so. They sent 12 spies to spy on the land, one for each tribe of Israel. Ten of the 12 said, there's no way we're doing this. We're going to get slaughtered. God was a little ticked off at about, Adam about uh, that. And so, like, Moses has to basically lead uh, the people through 40 years of desert wandering, why um, everyone who was unwilling to trust God, the same God who did these, uh, these, the plagues, the same God who parted the sea, the same God that like they can't look at Moses because his face is shining. You know, these people were afraid that they weren't able to enter the land and God's like, he's done with them and they need to die first before Israel's allowed to um, enter. Next part of Moses uh, that I want to cover is Moses, friend of God. I think there's a song that goes that way. Um, I guarantee you, like, Google after church today, and you're going to have pastors that are going to be doing uh, sermons on Moses, friend of God, and, and how Moses saw the face of God, and you're going to hear all this stuff, and, and, and it's not true. They're wrong. Let me prove it to you. Exodus 33:11. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Well, that just proved it, didn't it? Here's my frustration, and I do. We always read stuff out of context, and I promise you, you probably one or two of you are going to still take me up on what I'm about to say. Um, but Moses neither would look face to face upon God, and I wouldn't even call Moses a friend of God. Why? Because keep reading. That was verse 11. So how about what does it say immediately after that? Let's start in verse 12 and let's look at what, you know, how this figure of speech is explained. 
So Moses says to the Lord, this is verse 12, I just showed you verse 11. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me, lead these people, but you have not even let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. Well, if you're pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I might know you and continue to find favor with you. Remembering that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, if your presence doesn't go with us, in other words, Moses, God's like, you know what, I'll go with you, but not the people. If your presence doesn't go with us from, from here, then, then don't send us up from here. How will anyone know that you're pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me? What else will distinguish these people from any other people upon the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing that you have asked, because I am pleased with you, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, the name of the Lord, in your presence. For I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face. <laughs> yeah, this is my greatest frustration as a pastor. Read the context. Figure of speech. Okay? You cannot see my face. Why? God says, for no one can see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. And when my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft in that rock. I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. And then once I've passed by, I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but you must not, my face must not be seen. We can't see the face of God and live. Moses is having these conversations with God. Listen, he's radiating God to the people. I, I don't deny that they're not talking, right? But there's a mist, there's a cloud, there, there's something in between. All Moses is able to see is the backside, a shadow of God, a, 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 a hundredth of God, a millionth, I don't know, whatever, just a portion of God. He can't see God's face and live. But I think it's interesting because Moses is a lot like who? Elijah. Because it's Elijah who's laying there on the ground after like the whole Mount Carmel thing. And, and, and Elijah doesn't have it in him to carry ministry any further. It's a tough life to be a prophet. And, and he just wants to die. The angel's got to kind of kick him, tells him to climb the mountain. And when he climbs the mountain, then Elijah's able to experience God in a very real way. Now, it wasn't in the, the, the fire. It wasn't in uh, the, 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 uh, the, 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 the smashing wind or the earthquake or all that other stuff. But it was in that gentle whisper that he experienced the presence of God, and it was what Elijah needed. Moses is a little bit more interesting because he's climbing the mountain. He's having these conversations with God. His face is radiating God, but it's still like he, he the people are grumbling, and life is, is miserable, and life is difficult, and he doesn't have what it takes, and, 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 and he just needs to experience the presence of God, and God gives Moses what, what he needs. Listen, life 
Life's difficult. People are committing suicide in, in, in ways like never before. Depression. Depression is rampant. There's very little hope. And, 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 and honestly, it's because there's a lack of God in society. And, and how do we get through those difficult times in, in life? We've got to, to turn to God. We've got to lean into God. And though we might not have that ability in that relationship with God, like maybe Elijah did or Moses, in which he says, hey, climb a mountain and I'm going to pass by and show you a glimpse. I'm going to show you a shadow. But we do have have his word. And, and, and listen, if, if you're struggling, you, you need to be leaning into that word. You need to be reading that word. You know, we have his spirit. We have prayer. We have these ways to approach God. But, but as we're dealing with the difficulties that we face in life and, and, and the hardships and so forth, we need to turn to God because in the same way that as Elijah did and Moses did, it allowed them to carry out whatever God had in store for them the rest of their lives. That's the only way that you and I are going to be able to do it as well. God's own word says that God will not give us more than we can handle in terms of temptation, and he'll give us a way out. Do you believe it, and, and, and do you live it? We're told in God's word that God will never leave us and never forsake us. Do you, do you live it, and do you believe it? Jesus himself says, listen, put your burdens upon me and, and take mine, for my burden is light, and he's willing to take our burdens. And are you giving that over to him? Are you giving it to him in prayer? Are you hand, handing over your worries and your concerns and all these different things because he's willing to take it? It's a promise. It's a gift that he gives us, but we've got to to give it to him and, and to come into his presence and and, and to hand it over to him. Are you willing to do it? Next thing that I would want to tell you about Moses, because there's not a lot of time, uh, is that Moses died. <laughs> it happens. We all do. But what is interesting about Moses and his death, and the reason I mention it is, so Moses at one point, and as faithful as he was to God, and they're Sort of friends. I, no, I'm just, they, I'm not going that far on the road. They had a close relationship, right? Um, Moses, at one point, does something that ticks God off. The people are grumbling, and, 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 and uh, they want something to drink, and he just, you know, without uh, consulting God, uh, smashes uh, his uh, staff on a rock, and it starts pouring out water, and God's like, wish you wouldn't have done that. You're not going to enter the promised land. So um, at the end of Moses' life, um, God allows Moses to see the land that Israel was going to inherit. Um, potentially, I say potentially, um, maybe God doesn't want people to uh, carry around Moses and his bones and do a little Moses worshiping or, or whatever. Um, but anyways, Moses climbs a mountain and he dies up there seeing the promised land. And God buries Moses with his own hand. That's what we know. The reasons behind it, we don't fully know, other than we know God wanted him to see it. So that's kind of cool. Once again, I just took a lot of uh, Moses' history and combined it into a short period of time. For the last five, ten minutes or so, I, I want to talk to you about leadership because this is Moses is the greatest of all time leader. And here's what I need everyone to understand, that we live in a day and age in which, you know, we don't need a hero. You know, people think we need heroes. We need leaders. That, that, that there is void of leaders. We're void of true leaders in our families. 
We're void of true leaders in our schools. We're void of true leaders uh, in government. We're void of true leaders uh, in, in workplaces. There's forms of leadership, but there, it's not godly leadership, and it's not the leadership that God has called us to. So I, I believe as Christians worshiping in this place, what, the message that you need to hear is God uh, desires all of us to, to ultimately become leaders, um, certainly within our families, but potentially beyond that in our circles of influence, maybe in our work. Listen, you don't have to be the boss to be a leader. In your work, you, through relationships and so forth, you can truly be a leader even if you're not the boss. Um, God's calling for us as Christians to be godly leaders. There's, a, there's just a lack of it in the world today. So here's the first and foremost that I want to say about leadership that we learned from Moses is this. The hardest leadership is leading when you're not going anywhere. And right now, like, I can just hear people who are, like, uh, you know, teachers on leadership and whatever, they would laugh me off the stage for seeing what I just said. Because a leader by nature takes people somewhere, not when you're following God. And I would say not in general. Because think about Moses. You know what I respect most about Moses is for 40 years, God says they're not going there. They're not going there until after the people die. So now you have to just kind of zigzag and walk in circles. How do you keep a million people, half? I don't know how many people, a lot of people, how do you keep them happy when, frankly, they have to wait for like flakes of food to develop on the ground. They have to wait for some birds to fall from the sky before they have meat. They can't shower whenever they want to shower. Um, life was in many ways much better for them in Egypt. They just wanted to go back. How do you maintain your leadership over the, that group of people for 40 years when they're not going anywhere? That is not an easy thing to do. And I would argue that, like, I would argue it's not, it's not hard to be a leader when things are going good. Listen, if you're over your company and all of a sudden sales are skyrocketing for whatever reason and things are going great, if you're a pastor over your church and all of a sudden the congregation's great, man, you look like a genius leader and everyone's singing your praises. It's not hard to be a leader when things are going good. And I would argue, not everyone's this way, but I would say it's not hard to be a leader when everything's kind of going difficult because when things are difficult, you have something to lead against. And you know you don't want to do this. You know you don't want to be that. I'm thinking about the Cold War. Like, I was alive during the end of the Cold War. You know, you needed good leadership back then in this country. We had good leadership back then in that country. But it's not really difficult to figure out. We just don't want to be like the Soviet Union, right? I mean, you can kind of figure it out. Um, you know, in battle, you can kind of figure out who's your good leaders and who's your bad leaders, but it's in the time of peace that leadership's really important because when your country does go into war, if you didn't have good leadership during the time of peace, you're not going to be real effective when you go to war. And I would argue that, that in our country, I would also argue in the church, I would probably argue also in our families as we've been in this time of comfort, as we've been in this time of peace, let's say from the country perspective, after the time of the Cold War, the United States won. And now we're in the, 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 the phase in which you're not really going anywhere and, and you're, you're the one on top. And, and if you don't have good leadership, then everything's going to go to pot. And, and that's how we've become where we are right now. And, and, it's, and it's that way, you know, even, even in our families, right? Uh, if things are going good, oh, you, you, maybe you look like a great leader. When things are difficult, you've got something to go against. But what about when the alarm goes off at 5 a.m. every morning? 
and you just get out of bed and, and, and you eat dinner at 6 p.m. every night and you go to bed at 10.30 and that's done over and over and over and the kids are slowly, you know, becoming two, they're becoming three, they're becoming five, they're becoming seven and all these different, you know, what does leadership look like at that point as the family's just, every day's kind of the same and I would argue that that's the time in which it's, it's, it's the most important but that's the time that it's the hardest when, when, when there's nothing to push off against, there's nothing great happening, it, it, that, that, that that that's when you really are defined as a leader. And that's what is so amazing about Moses' leadership is, is during just that 40 years of nothing going on, he was able to lead and lead extremely effectively. Second thing I want to say about leadership is the power of servant leadership. Now, servant leadership is it's either misunderstood or isn't widely maybe accepted. There's this misconception that being a leader means you get to call the shots, you get to bark orders, right? And people follow. That, that's, that's not how Moses led. Listen, God was ready to smite and to destroy Israel, but Moses is like, God, if, if you appreciate me, you'll go with me. God, if you appreciate me, you won't wipe them out and start over with me. You know, he, he, he was a servant to the people. Uh, Moses wasn't the one that would just tell everyone else what to do. He would do it himself. His father-in-law had to get on him because Moses, so you got a half million people, million people. I don't know how big Israel was. People can argue about that. It doesn't matter. A lot of people. They're, they're not able to figure out some disputes amongst themselves. So you know who they would take it to? They'd take it to Moses. And so from the moment that he got up sipping his coffee to the moment he would go to bed at night, streams of people would come before him and he would have to settle disputes. So much so that his father-in-law came and chewed him out and said, Moses, you can't keep doing this. But Moses wasn't the one that expected other people to do it. He was willing to show it and do it himself. Jesus came. He didn't come into this world to be served, but to serve. Now, God of all people, should God, God should be served, not served. But God shows us the importance of servant leadership. And I want to challenge some of you men in here. In fact, I want to challenge all of you men in here because I believe that God has created us as male, males and called us as males to, to, to lead. But the problem is, is, is we think that leading is to sit on our rear ends and bark out commands, but that's not leadership. And because we haven't been good leaders, you know, our wives and, 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 and maybe even in some cases our children have to step up into places of leadership. And, and the way that we are to lead in our families is through servant leadership. I'll get guys tell me all the time, you're like, my, my wife doesn't listen to me, my kids. You're never home. You're never doing anything. You're never lifting a finger. How about your home? How about you, 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 know, you help out with the stuff around the house? How about you know, when the kids need something at, you know, at, at 11 o'clock at night because they, figure, they forgot that, that you're the one that goes out? How about you put that all on your back and, and all of a sudden when you do and when you, you, you lead by example and you serve your family, guess what? Now your family's gonna care what you think about what the color of the carpet is. Now your family's gonna care about where you think, you know, vacation or, or how you should handle a certain situation. If all you're doing is sitting back on your rear end barking out orders, they're not gonna care nor should they because that's not leadership. From Moses, we learn that being a good leader has very little to do with being popular. You know, people confuse popularity with leadership and they're, they're not similar. You know, you shouldn't be friends with someone who, who, who's just going to tell you what you want to hear, let alone you shouldn't follow a, a leader who's going to do that. You know, when we look at Moses, Moses, Moses didn't care about being popular. 
Moses is, you know, listen, when he went up that mountain and, and, he, and, and brought the Ten Commandments down and they had built those golden calves, he, didn't, he wasn't like, man, I, I kind of understand that I was gone for a while. I, man, I, I might have done the same myself. It, it's all right. We just pretend it didn't happen. No, he's like burning that stuff, grinding it up, mixing it with salt water, making them all drink it, and then having, you know, the, the, the Levites strap on swords, walk back and forth and start killing people. He wasn't trying to be popular. He was leading according to the truth of God. And, and, and if I had time to, to give you other stories of those 40 years of wandering, there's times that you didn't want to be around Moses because he wasn't doing the popular thing. Guess what? When you look at Jesus and you read Jesus in the Bible, he wasn't always caring about being popular. He was, he was, he was not only being harsh against the religious leaders, uh, he was constantly telling people who thought they wanted to follow him that they, that, that they really weren't worthy of it. And, and he was always kind of challenging people and so forth. It, it, Listen, in the world today, listen, what we need is less pastors who are just telling people things because it's going to put a lot of butts in the seats. What we need is less politicians who are going to just tell people because they know that that's what's going to be the popular thing. We need true leadership, and leadership, true leadership is different than just wanting to be popular. The other side of that coin is this. <laughs> you can't lead if you don't have followers. Now, some of y'all in here think like you're leaders, but there ain't no one following you. You got to have people following you to be a leader. Now, we don't lead to be popular, but when we lead in God's truth, people are naturally going to follow you. When we lead in God's truth, it's going to start with your family, and then it's your circle of influence, and maybe even at work, and maybe even beyond that. You know, that's why it says of pastors, that if your own family won't follow you, you really you don't deserve to be a pastor. Why? Because if you can't get your family to follow you, then why would you get like a, a congregation of people to follow you? And you don't deserve to. I, um, my oldest daughter gave me a compliment uh, a week or so ago. Um, I don't, I, I'm pretty sure I didn't even really acknowledge it or thank her for it, but um, she shared with me that uh, her and her friend had, uh, were talking, and they're like, you know what, if my daddy doesn't tell me to do it, I'm, we're not going to do it. And what she's saying is, if it's not a good idea to my dad, you know, I'm not going to do it. Because why? Because of the respect that she has, you know, for me. And, and I appreciate that. And, and once again, it's, it's got to start in your, your family. If your family's not following you, then, then you're doing something wrong in terms of leadership. And then the last thing that uh, I want to conclude with this morning is leadership is about following God. You can't be a leader until you first become a follower. You got to learn to surrender to God. And when we learn to surrender to God, all of a sudden, like, leadership just kind of happens because uh, we're leading by following God. We're, we're reflecting that image of God. We're showing God to people. There was nothing about Moses that made him a good leader. The guy was slow to talk. He had anger issues, impulsive. You know, I went through that whole list. He's not a good leader other than the fact that when that burning bush thing happened, after he had his 40 years of education in the desert, he learned to surrender to God, and he became the greatest leader of all times. So in your families, in your circles of influence, in your workplaces and so forth, you don't have to be perfect. Moses wasn't perfect but surrender to God, be a servant leader, um, lead during times in which you're not really going anywhere. All these things that I talked about, do these things, and um, you can be a leader that God can use. And we need good, God-fearing Christian leaders in today's world. Do you join me in a word of prayer? 
Gracious Almighty God, we just thank and praise you for your word this morning, um, to able to hear you hear your truth, to be able to speak your truth. And I just pray, gracious God, that as we look at, at Moses and learn about um, how he became the greatest leader of all times, that you'd move our hearts and our minds and that you'd help us to be um, the, the leaders that you've called for us to be. I pray especially, gracious God, for all of us who uh, maybe have uh, tipped the wrong way on those uh, tipping points in our own lives to um, give us another chance to, uh, to give us another one of those events in our lives. Help us as we uh, face those uh, throughout our lives um, to be faithful to you and uh, with our wisdom and with our experience that you might be able to use us to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.